Hebrews chapter 3 and verse number 7 is the commencement of this section down to verse 19, which is actually the end of the chapter. So let's just read this together. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me and proved me and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said they do always err in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, how be it not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And that's our reading. Now it's been a week or two since uh, we were in this book of Hebrews. Let me just remind you of the flow of thought from the beginning until we arrive at this section here in Hebrews chapter 3. Remember that these Christians with the Jewish background, they had begun well, but they had suffered um, terribly and had experienced quite a lot of persecution. And many had their property confiscated and violence visited upon them as a result of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were enduring it joyfully, says that in chapter 10, which is unusual to say the least, that you would endure the destruction of your property joyfully but they had done and they were suffering for the cause of Christ but some of them were actually in danger of drifting back into Judaism and neglecting their great salvation as we saw in chapter 2 and that challenging um, exhortation in verse number 1 down to verse 3. So they are to recalibrate their thoughts around about the Lord Jesus Christ and remember why it was that they had left behind Judaism and come out of that to Christ. And this book is a reminder of these things. It's a reminder that in Christ they have have enough. Christ is sufficient is the great theme of this epistle. Christ is greater even, not just sufficient, than all they left behind in Judaism, which was pointing forward actually to the Lord Jesus. And the superiority of Christ is one of the themes that run right through this epistle. And we've seen in our studies that he is superior even to Moses, who really had such a high place in the history and in the religious life of Israel. So it's decision time, and that's why there are challenges, and that's why there are exhortation sections in the book. It's not simply a flow of information, but there is information given, then there's a challenge brought. What are you going to do about the information that you've just received? It's decision time. Faced with the truth about Christ, the superiority of Christ, what are you going to do? Now, in this section, let me just outline this section. It's not a big outline, it's just three points, really. But first of all, when you come to verse 7, notice the word that begins the verse, the word wherefore. 
So what do you, again, this idea of wherefore, you really need to look back up the chapter to see what he's building upon. In fact, it goes right back. So on the basis of everything up to verse number six, that is chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, verse one to six, he then says, wherefore. So he's building on all of that. And he then enters into a parenthesis. If this was a school, I'd be saying hands up if you know what a parenthesis is. Just basically brackets so that the text could read. If you took the bit out within the brackets, the flow of sentence would still make sense. But the parenthesis is from verse 7 after the word wherefore. So it begins with, as the Holy Ghost saith, right down to the end of verse number 11. Now, if you're reading out an authorised version of the Bible, then you will see the brackets in the text. I'm not sure about the other versions that you may have in your hand, whether they also have these brackets. The brackets obviously are not inspired. It's just uh, English uh, punctuation, but it does give the idea. So you've got this parenthesis in verse 7 to verse 11, where he gives background and an example from the Old Testament. So he says, wherefore, and then if you pick it up in verse 12, here is the warning. Take heed brethren. So on the basis of chapter 1 verse 1 right through to chapter 3 verse 6 he says wherefore take heed. Now in between the wherefore and the take heed he has this parenthesis that he's going to give them an illustration from their history remember they they were people with a Jewish background so he's going to delve back into what they were familiar with which was their national history. And he's going to draw out of that history example, an example in particular, that will give them more information, another warning, a lesson from their own history that they should not repeat in their present day circumstance. The only thing that we learn from history is that we never learn from history. That is one of these famous sayings, and it's true in the Bible as well. And the writer to the Hebrews wants to break that cycle. He wants to take them back to their history. He wants to show God's dealings with them and their response historically to God. And he's going to say, don't repeat the mistakes in your history. Don't repeat the mistakes of your forefathers in relation to this particular issue that he's going to raise. So he says, wherefore? Now, in particular... That wherefore builds upon three arguments in the first three chapters down to verse 6. Number one, the Messiah, Jesus, the Messiah is greater, is superior to all the prophets. He is superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. Wherefore? Now, here's the flow of thought in this section. So that's the kind of flow of thought up to the section. Now here's the flow of thought in the section. So, wherefore refers to this. Remember that the Son, he was introduced as the Son, humbled himself in chapter 2, took on humanity in his incarnation. Remember, we were thinking about being made a little lower than the angels. And by virtue of his identification with man and his incoming into time, and his death, burial, and resurrection, he has provided a way of salvation. He has provided help and succor and salvation to mankind. That's why he became a man. 
Therefore, we should focus at the beginning of chapter 3 our attention on Jesus. Not going back to all these prophets, not even going to angels, not even going to Moses. But rather, focus your attention in chapter 3 verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, not the earthly calling, that's Israel. You're partakers of the heavenly calling now. You're not really engaging with these Old Testament prophets and Moses and not even angels, the mediators of the Old Covenant. But you are partakers of the heavenly calling. So therefore, fix your attention and focus on Jesus. And remember, he's the apostle and high priest of our confession. He's greater than Moses. That's verse 1 to 6 of chapter 3. Now, if the son is greater than Moses, if Jesus is greater than Moses, wherefore links into this? Take heed. Verse 12, take a parenthesis out. Wherefore, take heed. Listen to Jesus. If he's greater than Moses, you need to listen to him. You need to take heed to what is being said here. So why do we need to take heed? Why do we need to hear his voice? Because he's going to demonstrate that if it was a terrible thing to reject Moses, the parenthesis, and the generation that rejected Moses, it cost them their lives. They were led out of slavery by Moses. And then they rejected God. They rejected Moses' leadership. And he shows that, well, if it was such a catastrophic thing to reject the leadership of Moses, then how much more catastrophic will it be to reject Jesus? Who, after all, is greater than Moses and is the apostle and high priest of our confession so here's the big idea to reject christ is far worse we'll meet with an even greater act of god's wrath than to reject moses why because jesus is superior to moses he's the apostle and high priest of our confession now the key link in all of this is verse six the second part of the sentence christ is a son over his own house whose house are we, then he says this, if we hold fast, if we hold fast, the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope from unto the end. Now link that back up with what he has to say down here in verse number uh, 12. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. And he's going to again emphasize this idea that he raises in verse number six which is that there was the possibility that among them were not true believers who had all the externals of being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ but the fact that they were drifting away going back to the old thing was an indication of their true spiritual condition so I was reading John Piper on this, and he illustrates it. Now, it's not going to, the illustration is not going to translate just, in, just exactly because he uses an American illustration, but it's the idea. He illustrates it with dialect. So he uses the southern, I'm not even going to try that, the southern American uh, dialect. And you can read them, you'll find them online. And he uses this to show that if you listen to someone speaking with a southern dialect, we might use the Peter Heather accent, okay, because that's... Probably weirder, excuse me if folks listen to us from Peter Head. But anyway, the idea is the same. So let's use the Peter Head accent. 
So Piper says this, when you hear someone with that accent, it indicates where they come from. Okay? So the idea is just this, that the person who is going on for God, who is enduring, who is still going on despite the persecution and hostility and terrible things, who just keeps going, who perseveres, that in itself doesn't bring them salvation, but it's an indication and evidence that they possess salvation. Okay, so suppose I then manage to master the Peterhead accent. That doesn't mean that qualifies me as coming from Peterhead. It just means I mastered the accent. I still don't come from there. So you don't want to put the cart before the horse, so to speak. And sometimes people do that. They say, listen, you need to keep going in your Christianity. You need to, right until the day you die, you need to persist and persist and persist. And if you don't persist, you'll lose your salvation. No, that is put the cart before the horse. The idea is just this, that when you are saved, you demonstrate the reality of your salvation by persisting, by enduring, by keeping on going. It's an evidence of an existing reality. Now, that may seem a bit technical. That is a vital truth to understand. So many get that wrong. So many are discouraged. So many who are taught that, they they live their life with this bondage and anxiety of panicking lest they lose their salvation. And then if they, if they fall into a transgression or sin or something like that, they're just devastated and they give up living for Christ because they think they're not saved. No, that's not what's being taught here. And so this exhortation is important. So let's come to the verses. There is a challenge in it for all of us. We'll see that as we go down. So verse 7, wherefore, let's get into this parenthesis then from verse 7 down to verse number 11. Now, the parenthesis is actually a full quotation of the second part of Psalm 95. Now, Psalm 95 in the Old Testament really is the the basis for the exhortations that come right through chapter 3 and chapter 4. And it's based upon Israel's failures at Meribah and and Massa in Exodus chapter 17 and in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. Now, he says this, as the Holy Ghost says... Now, as I've said, that's a quotation from Psalm 95. Now, in chapter 4, verse 7, he attributes Psalm 95 to David. But here he emphasises it's the Holy Spirit who not only spoke, it's present tense, but is still speaking. So here's the inspiration of the Psalms, the divine inspiration of the Psalms attributed. That although David wrote it, it was the Spirit speaking. And although David wrote it, Thousands of years ago, the Spirit is still speaking. It's still the Word of God. It's still living. It's still active. It's still divine communication when we receive it. And so God is speaking to us through these scriptures as he does through all scriptures. Even though it's human authors, it's a divine voice. Second Peter 1 verse 21 says that, The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So, he says this, as the Holy Ghost says, today if you will hear his voice. This is going to be a challenge to us. Now, hearing is a big point in this epistle. Now, apparently I'm half deaf, so I'm told all the time. 
and maybe full deaf and only hear half of it, but anyway, we're meant to be half deaf, and we do have issues in our family with hearing, there is no doubt about that, although we also, I think, have a family of mumblers, and but all deaf folks say that, and my brother David's not in there yet, he is the same trouble in his family as I have in mine. So, hearing is a problem. If you are not listening, it's a problem in the relationship. Information can't be passed and responded to. So he says, if you will hear his voice, it's crucial that we listen to God. Why have we to listen to God? Because this book's told us God's speaking to us. In fact, God's been speaking right from the beginning of time. God's been communicating. That's what the beginning of the book is all about. Remember this, he, he begins the whole book with God and his communication. God, who at sundry times in divers' manners, spake in time past by the fathers, or unto the fathers by the prophets. Then look at verse 2. Hath in these last days spoken unto us in his Son, and so on. So you get this idea that God is communicating in Christ. He's got things he wants to say to us. The question is, are we listening? That was the challenge to the audience who are reading this book. Are you listening? Are you listening to God's final and ultimate communication in his son? Who is the word, the alpha and omega, which is the alphabet of God, the first and last um, letter of the Greek language and it just speaks about about Christ as being the full alphabet of God is the communication that God has for us and it's interesting isn't it that the warning passages in the book of Hebrews are all about a failure to listen so for example in chapter 2 and verse 1 to 3 we've already looked at that let me just take you back there therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things what which we have heard lest at any time we let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and so on, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord? It's all about God speaking and us not listening. That's the crucial problem here. And it's still the crucial problem for us. So how does God speak to us today? In his word, the written word, which is all about the living word. And when you think about God's communication to us, we have that in our Bibles. The question is, are we listening? Are we taking heed? Are we paying attention? That's the challenge. We'll see why specifically in a moment. Well, in verse number eight, he says this, if you will hear... His voice. So here's the second thing. Number one, are you listening? But listening is not the be-all and end-all. It is a means to an end. Because there has to be a response from the heart. So he says, when you hear, harden not your hearts. Now, that's a familiar biblical Phrase, it's familiar terminology if you've been reading through the Old Testament. And Psalm 95 is all about Israel's disobedience and rejection of Moses in the wilderness. And mind you, it's quite a sorry tale. And it's interesting that they began their wilderness journey 
with God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Ultimately, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, then God hardened his heart. So a hardened heart marked the beginning of their journey. But it wasn't long before their hearts were hardened. And they stopped listening. Pharaoh wouldn't listen to Moses and Aaron. And he just ignored what they had to say. And he ignored all the warnings time and time and time again until God hardened his heart. And that basic flaw of not listening to divine communication is replicated amongst the people of God now once they get out into the wilderness. They're doing exactly the same thing. They're not listening either. So you get to Exodus 16, and you remember God provides them with manna and feeds them miraculously every day. Millions of people fed from heaven. Unbelievable. Exodus 17, they go three days into the wilderness and they don't find any water except the bitter water of manna. What happens is this, it's a rebellion. Their hearts go hard like stone. They forget that they've been brought through the Red Sea. They forget the plagues that are brought beneath. They forget the character of their God. And they accuse God of bringing them into the wilderness just to, just to let them die. Three days. Exodus 17 verse 7. When all of that takes place, God instructs Moses to strike the rock with his staff. Water comes gushing forth. Water out of a rock. Sounds like a southern gospel Song, water comes gushing out of the rock. It's miraculous. But it says this, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So Moses named that place uh, Massa, which means a test, and Meribah, which means a quarrel. Now, the Greek translates the Hebrew in verse 3 and verse 8 directly here. So, Meribah is translated as, as in the provocation. It's a direct from Hebrew to Greek. And then the second part of uh, verse number 8, as in the day of temptation, it could be if it's Hebrew, as in the day of Massa. So, he takes these two names and he brings it right in here. In Psalm 95, and now quoted here in Hebrews. And he's taken them back into the history and says, You don't remember these days, you were taught about them. You remember how hard the hearts of your forefathers were. Don't be like them, he says. Don't learn or, or learn the lesson. Don't repeat the fault. Don't you harden your hearts like they hardened their hearts. One writer says, through David in Psalm 95, the Holy Spirit warns God's people today. And he says, don't be like them. Don't harden your hearts. Don't test God. Don't tempt God. Don't go astray in your heart. Seek to know God's ways. Harden not your heart. Because to have a hard heart is to be in rebellion against God. Now, I'm not a reader of the Pilgrim's Progress. I've never read it. Short corner in full. However... In the Pilgrim's Progress, you're introduced to a man, and I love this character, called Obstinate. Now, I don't love his behaviour, but just love the fact that there is a man or a character who his name reflects his character, as they do in Pilgrim's Progress. So Christian tries to convince him that their city's about to experience wrath from God and will soon be destroyed. And the answer's in the book he holds in his hands. But rather than listening, Obstinate considers Christian mentality unbalanced 
and returns home rather than looking for the truth. It doesn't look for it. So in the Old Testament, we read about a whole generation of people who bear that character. They won't listen to God. They see the Red Sea split down the middle. They see the manna rain from heaven. They see the water flow out from the rock. They see the cloud in front of them by day. They see the pillar of fire by night. In the midst of all of these miracles, they are grumbling and complaining and tempting and testing God. Now, the danger of doing that is this. There comes a time when the long-suffering of God runs out, as it did with them. So it says in verse number 9, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works for 40 years. 40 years. 40 years of consequences following the hardness of their hearts at Kadesh Barnea in Numbers chapter 14 when the spies came back. And they would not believe the report. They would not trust God to take them into the land. During that time, there was the great rebellion in Exodus 32, the golden calf. Again, they hardened their heart because Moses wasn't coming down the mountain anytime soon. And so, you remember the pathetic thing that Aaron said, you know, they threw the gold and out, jumped out a golden calf. Fantastic. And then they worshipped it and there was immorality all around it as well. Actually, in Numbers 14, it says this, all those men that have seen my glory and my signs which I wrought in Egypt and in the wilderness yet have tested me ten times and have not hearkened to my voice. Surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that despise me see it. Now, it's the same today. What's the context? God's communication in his son. The superiority of his son. Listen to his son. Hearken to what God's got to say. Don't learn the lesson or do learn the lesson of your forefathers who didn't listen to divine communication in their day, who rebelled against Moses often, who spoke for God. And in verse 10, it says this, this is what happened to that generation. I was grieved with that generation. That word grieved is a strong word, very strong. He was absolutely offended at the behaviour of Israel. He was displeased, he was angry, he was wroth with them. Why? There's a very interesting sentence construction here because I understand it, it could be like this. So he says they do always err in their heart. Now, it means this, that they were led astray in their heart. Now, how did that happen? They have not known my ways. Now, when I was looking at this, I found this quite interesting, that the distinctive word to know here speaks of knowledge gained by experience. It's the aorist tense in the Greek text, and if you're really into this, this is a quotation from a lexicon, and is therefore a fact antecedent to the verb, which means this. I think Jeremy's the only one who knows what that means off the top of his head. But anyway, it means this, that Israel's ignorance of the ways of Jehovah preceded and was the cause of their being led astray in their heart. So that their ignorance was due to their neglect of Jehovah. The knowledge they lacked was that experiential knowledge. And as a consequence, they didn't know the ways of God. 
and they were led astray in their hearts. What a challenge. That it wasn't the other way about. They didn't wander and then cease to know the ways of God because they were far from God. No, it was the other way about. It was, first of all, before they wandered away, that they had not known his ways which caused them to wander. Now, bring that bang up to date. People leave churches and assemblies and their personal walk with the Lord long before they remove themselves physically from those contexts. You see, in their heart, they're far away first. Then they go. Then they go. Are we out of touch with God? We need to be careful because if we are out of touch with God and his ways, practically, experientially in our lives, then one of the consequences, and it certainly was for them, is this, that we will wander away in our hearts. Just wander far from the Lord. And he says in verse 11, So, as a consequence, I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Now, in the strict context of the Old Testament, that was the promised land that they were heading to. That was Canaan for them. And they had this um, prospect in front of them of, of all the promises of God for that generation going to be fulfilled in that land, they were being taken for a short space of time, actually, from the captivity and the awfulness of Egypt, and they were going to be transported through this fairly short journey right up into the land, which was God's provision for them, where there was no rest. Not inactivity, but rest. Remember where they're coming from. Bondage, no rest. Yet, because of their unbelief, because they wandered from God in their heart, what happened? None of them entered into that rest. Do you remember that although the spies that came back, it was only um, Joshua and Caleb who entered in? Only the two. And in fact, in relation to all the people of God, then those of a fighting age and above all perished in the wilderness. A whole generation. They could not enter into the rest. You see, there are divine consequences for unbelief. So then we come to verse 12. There's the parenthesis. There's the history lesson. There's the lessons written large. They know all about that. The carcasses strewn in the wilderness. They know it was only Joshua and Caleb out of all that generation who get in. They know it was unbelief. It would have been drilled into them. He says, don't, don't you make the same mistake. Take heed. Listen. It's all about listening. Take heed, brethren. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Now that word brethren is a generic term. Remember he's spoken about Christians as holy brethren. Now he just uses the word brethren. And so he's speaking about those who are of Christ, who are saved, and those who profess to be saved, who take the place, if you like, of being a Christian. And he's speaking to them generally, generically. And he wants them to be careful, to listen, to take heed. He wants them to keep an eye, a watchful eye open is the idea. Lest there be in any of you, in any certain individual in your number, this 
evil heart of unbelief. Now, the Greek order of words is this, a heart evil with reference to unbelief. So it's the idea that the particular word for evil, I'm going to quote you this, is not evil in the abstract, but evil in active opposition to good. So, for example, when Satan is spoken of as being the evil one, it's this word here. Poneros, as opposed to kakos, apparently. And Paul also uses it in Galatians 1 verse 4 when he speaks of this present evil, same word, age. It's not passive, it's not latent, it's active, pernicious condition. Now, we've got to be careful here to distinguish between things that are different. So there is sometimes a heart in which unbelief is present. That's mine. Or there is the unbelieving heart. That is that the whole heart is characterised by that. Now, a Christian, well, can have a heart in which there is some unbelief, but no, a Christian cannot have a heart that is completely and utterly controlled and characterised by unbelief. No faith. That's not true of a Christian. He says you be very careful. Lest that is true of you, that you're not saved, basically. And the persecution was exposing the reality of it. Some were going back. It was too much. What they had come out from Judaism to, they had taken a place of having true faith and they didn't. And so when persecution came, back they went. So how does this look in, in our day? Could this happen in our day? Yes, I think it can happen in our day. I think it does happen in our day. So you have people who perhaps give an assent, an intellectual agreement, a conformity through upbringing or whatever to the lifestyle of being a Christian. But if circumstances change for them, the reality of their heart would be exposed. So I often speak about the scaffolding that surrounds people who are brought up in Christian homes and when that scaffolding is taken away, do they stand? Do they stand? When they are making their own decisions and they are not simply reflecting other people's influences, but when they're deciding for themselves, now that can happen when you're 16. Or it might not happen until you're 45, depending on your family and your context and, and your life choices. You may go from one scaffold right into another one. And then right into another one. And then right into another one. And then it's all you've known. And you're floating along. And you're not saved. You're not saved. And if you were put into a place where suddenly Christians were being persecuted and you were losing property and violence visited upon you and there was nothing um, attractive or peaceful about your, your profession of faith in Christ and all of that stripped away from you, would you still take your stand as a Christian? That's the test. That's the test. There were some, and he wants them to test themselves. He wants them to ask themselves the question. So he says in verse number 13, but exhort one another daily. You know, there were in extreme circumstances here. Make sure you've got it. Make sure it's real. 
Now, it's not to provoke doubts and fears, but it's the opposite. It's to bring assurance and affirmation that, yes, you do have Christ as Saviour. It brings tremendous assurance and affirmation. But he says this, Take heed, lest there be any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And I should have said something about that word departing. That word departing does not mean leaving something. Like, I am a Christian now, I'm not, no longer going to be a Christian. That's not possible. The word actually means to stand off from, be aloof from. So the, it's, the, it's the word from which we get the word apostate. This is the idea. It's derived from this. Woos, Kenneth Woos says that apostasy is defined as the act of someone who has previously subscribed to a certain belief, either in word or in lifestyle choices, they have associated with, ascribed to, taken the place of, but who now renounce that. Woos says that now renounces his former professed belief in favour, not of a passive, indifferent approach to Christ. But apostasy is when someone becomes diametrically opposed to what they at one stage were for. So this idea of evil is not passive, but active. The best type of word to translate the word evil is pernicious, apparently. An active, pernicious attitude towards Christian things in the gospel. That happens. I've seen that happen. You've seen that happen. Someone who professes to be a Christian, life changes, and then all of a sudden they are so hostile to Christianity. It's not passive. It's not indifference. It's active hostility. That was happening here. He says, you make sure you've got the right thing. Lest this happen to you. He says, exhort, while it's called today, lest any of you be, he that is again, hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now that word deceitfulness just means trickery or stratagem. And remember this, that the way Satan gets someone from the position of association with or affirmation of the gospel to this position of outright active hostility to it is often subtle. It's often a strategy, trickery, deceitfulness. It is not often just a, a simple um, challenge or a persecution. Satan employs all of his hard-earned, if you like, years of experience in how to trip up and deceive and trick people. So he does. He says, exhort one another. To what? To faith. To faith, to the real thing. We shouldn't be scared. If we know someone who is walking a path away from Christ, we should not be scared to exhort them to faith. You know, sometimes when people sit, for example... And they, they have some sort of association with the gospel. Uh, and, you know, people, you know, they maybe professed faith when they were seven. And I'm not belittling that because I was a very young child when I professed faith. 
but they profess faith as a child when all of the rest of the decisions in their life are not made by them, but made by their parents. And they make this one key, I did, one key critical, simple childlike decision. But you know, it's almost impossible to know by the lifestyle of a seven-year-old whether that decision is genuine. It's only time that can actually establish that. When someone grows up until they're making their own decisions, until what is in here is affecting their decision-making and lifestyle choices. Now, as I say, some people go right through their 20s and they're still not making their own decisions. Because they've maybe married someone and they're making the decisions. Or they're maybe still under the influence of parents or friends or, or, or a community and they're just being swept along. And yet the time comes, I think, in just about everyone's life when, whether it's when you're 14 or whether it's when you're 44, that what is in you finally is manifested by your decisions. Finally. So he said, listen, exhort one another. We should not be afraid to recognise that that person has no faith. And exhort them to faith. Exhort them toward the gospel. And not simply play along with the idea, well, you know, the professed, there's been, you know, their lifestyle has not shown anything in that. In fact, they may now actually be quite hostile to the gospel. Let us not be afraid. Exhort, he says, one another, while it is called today, while there is the day of grace in our lives, the day of opportunity, lest... You be hardened. <coughs> a hard heart is a terrible thing. It's spiritual experience. Whether you're a Christian or not, a hard heart's a terrible thing. It's like the sower who goes out to sow and the seed falls on the stony ground. Now, you'll have heard this often enough. That's not like our garden used to be with stones all over the place, you know, and weeds coming through and all that kind of stuff. The idea is of a of a, a lime bedrock that lies just below the surface. And so that when the, the, the seed was, was sown, there was a little bit of, of soil. So the seed would go down, but there would be no depth of root. It would hit hard, solid surface that couldn't be penetrated. And that's like some of our hearts. It just goes below the surface, but there's a hardness about our heart that the seed, which is the word of God, can't actually break into. So he says, be very careful. Verse 14, for we are made partakers of Christ. Here it is again. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast and then He says, listen, you truly belong to Christ. And how do you demonstrate that? You demonstrate the reality of that by your continuance. You just keep going. It's not spectacular. It's not exciting. It's not, you know, grandiose or whatever. It's just the fact that you keep on. It's like Warren Wearsby's book, In Praise of Plodders. You just keep going so that in 10 years' time, you're still there. And what I mean by still there? You still are, are, are loyal to Christ, serving Christ. doesn't mean you're still necessarily in the same assembly, but you're still, as a Christian, taking your stand with Christ in your life, whatever that may be. So he finishes it with this. While it is said, he says. Again, he quotes it. If you hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. And then he just reflects on it. He says, some, 
And he's really, in these last verses, he's just going to identify the problem, and the identification of the problem comes at the end of verse number 19. He says, so we see. So if you go from verse 15 down to verse number 19, you come out at the bottom with this conclusion, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Remember this, salvation comes by faith. We are, we are justified by faith. We are people of faith. Abram is the father of the faithful. It's faith, trust, belief. How does someone exercise faith? Where does that come from? The Bible tells us. Faith cometh by hearing. And hearing the word of God. You're back to that again. It's all about listening and hearing God's communication. And those who will not hear, who will not believe, marked by unbelief, are those who perished. Unbelief is sin. Proverbs 29 verse 1, I'm finished. He that being oft reproved and hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed. And that without remedy. Not without remedy. So the writer to the Hebrews has a very challenging section there. And before he goes on to verse number uh, chapter 4, let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. We shouldn't be afraid of that challenge. We shouldn't be afraid of a self-test. Where are we spiritually? What's the, what's the real situation here with me as a person? It doesn't matter how old or young we are. Trust that we might exhort each other to faith and the reality of Christ the Saviour. Let's just pray and give thanks for his word and also for the food we're about to enjoy together.